Welcome to Back in the Field, the Brooklyn Nine-Nine podcast. I'm Carl. My name is Arthi, and today we're going to be talking about old school. Old school, the episode with the old guy in it. Yes, uh, Jimmy Brogan. That's exactly what his name is. So let's remind our audience what this episode's about, Carl. Uh, in this episode, Jake meets his hero, which is always a bad idea. His hero <laughs> being Jimmy Brogan, a journalist who reported on cops during the 70s and wrote a book called The Squad. Turns out he's a racist, sexist, homophobic asswipe, which was not surprising. And uh, Jake basically destroys himself in an attempt to please him. Yep. And uh, in the B-plot, we have Rosa being prepared by Terry and Boyle to testify at trial. She is... Well, Terry assumes that she's a terrifying human being. Turns out she's just nervous. Also a terrifying human being. Yeah. The two things aren't mutually exclusive. Also draws her inner sea of calm from murder. (laughs) Which requires Terry sign her up for a psych evaluation. Yup, (laughs) yup. Can't say I blame him. Yeah, so we decided when we were writing up our notes for this episode that the easiest way to just talk about this is A plot, B plot. So we'll start with the A plot. As Carl mentioned, Jimmy Brogan proves himself very quickly to be a, well, worthless piece of shit of a human being. The worst. And I, we've already decided that Jake is the worst. <laughs> Remember, we have that segment, Jake is the worst. Yeah, but Jake is the worst for a pretty progressive cop in the 2010s. <laughs> Jimmy Brogan is much, much worse. Jimmy Brogan is super, super the worst. And, uh, and I think in, in large part it's because Brogan just doesn't care. Um, in fact, you'd characterize Brogan's sort of life as uh, performing sloppy whiteness, which Jake ends up sort of getting roped into do as part of his hero worship. He exemplifies sloppy white masculinity, and he draws that out of Jake in the worst way. So before we like talk, talk to us a little bit more, Carl, about sloppy white masculinity. So... Jimmy Brogan inhabits a space where he doesn't really have to care about what anyone else thinks because he's in all of the dominant groups. He can punch down as much as he wants and he'll never be called a task for it because he ruled the world. He was uh, white and relatively affluent and in good with the cops during a time of massive police corruption that was completely racially motivated. And, you know... When you're in that situation, you don't have to hold yourself to any kind of standards of behavior because all of the vitriol, all of the punishment is going to be directed at people in a more vulnerable bracket. That's what power looks like. And Jake idolizes many things about that era because the cops then did ridiculous gunfighty shenanigans that he associates with awesomeness. Not because, you know, he wants to be, uh, to live a life free of anyone being able to check him. I was going to say that, like, one of the things, what my notes here indicate, include, like, you know, Jake is often confronted with his privileged position, and he, I think in, in an earlier episode, it might have been even the pilot, you say that, uh, you said something I thought was really cool. Might have just been in one of our conversations that before we podcasting, which was that Jake Jake often uses his position of privilege to improve the the situations of those around him, um, and this is actually an, uh, probably a great episode where where that for that like point. This is actually one of the episodes that you explicitly cited about 
that point when we were talking about it forever ago. I think you're right in that, like, the, the things he idolizes about the 70s era, like cop life, is all the flashy stuff. He clearly hasn't thought about the institutional issues. In fact, Holt straight up tells him, he's like, you're two, two of your coworkers, three if you count me, could not have been working with you. Yep. Uh, neither Rosa nor Amy would ever made a detective because mm. they were non-white women. That didn't happen, you know, at all. We're, I mean, there were female beat cops, but not very many of them. There was, uh, I was at the Museum of the City of New York uh, several months ago, back in December. There's a photograph of a woman, uh, a female beat cop, playing in the, in the spray of a fire hydrant with a couple of children of color. Uh, mm-hmm. I think one's thinks think is one's Afro Latino and the other one is Latina, a Latina child. And um, my my friend Lindsay pointed out that like what's extraordinary about that image is just that like you have a female beat cop, which is already pretty rare, and she doesn't appear to be a woman of color, and she they're just like sort of frolicking with a bunch of kids. It's it's a a strange moment of like a bunch of different people who would have been marginalized sort of having like a positive moment together. It was the photograph is dated to like the early to mid seventies as well. Mm-hmm. But, but like moments like that are rare. And, and even like into the eighties when I, I was reading homicide a year on the killing streets, there is one female detective at all in the Baltimore police department in 1989 one. And she is not part of the primary group of cops whom David Simon writes about. In The Wire, there is Shakima Greggs. She is the only female cop in major crimes for a long time. Uh, She's not the only major female character, to be clear, but she's the only major female cop. Right. And and the show uh, straight up says that lesbian cops tend to make it the most. One of the characters, I think it's um, Dominic West's character, uh, McNulty, he straight up says cops, uh, female cops who are lesbians tend to make it and, like, stick it out the most and the longest. Oh. Anyway, it's kind of a sidebar. But ultimately, the, 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 the institutionalized problems that Holt points out to Jake, he's like, yeah, but everything was so much cooler then. Yeah, he... And Amy points these out as well. Mm-hmm. In her uh, own way. Brogan, when, bro, well, Brogan will say something like, you know... He strangled a hippie with his own ponytail. And their simultaneous reactions are awesome and illegal. Yes. Like, Amy has no... Patience for this. She, she has no patience. She has no blinders. No. She comes in just... She's 100% not here for this. And, yeah. and more... You you said something that I thought was really great in our like sort of pre-conversation about this, where you said Brogan draws a circle around himself and Jake and deliberately excludes Amy. Yeah. And what's really fascinating about this is that it's not just in sort of like, ha-ha... He, he never goes, ha-ha, the girl. He just never really addresses her directly. And he keeps bringing up situations where the squad that he was reporting on was extremely brutal towards Latin people. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think, Latin like, American. Puerto Ricans. He, he specifically, specifies. yeah. It's and, a big Puerto Rican community. And she, she visibly and audibly checks out at that point. She's like, that's my cue to leave. Yep. Yep, and if you watch that scene, Jake is looking at her like, "What? No, stay!" Totally ignorant of he, like he has no idea. He doesn't have to care. Yeah, and it's even more sort of. It's not. It's not more upsetting, but it's interesting that like, 
the that Brogan continu- con- continuously draws the circle around him and Jake, even when Amy does stuff that like should be impressive to Brogan. For example, when they chase down the cyber culprit, right? If you watch that, Amy chases the guy down like she's like right behind him, and then Kicks sweeps out, out from yeah, room. sweeps out his legs, and then takes him down. Brogan, by all respects, should be impressed by that. It's a pretty sweet takedown. But he's more impressed by Jake being too hungover to actually chase the guy. Yeah, that's more in his playbook. Yeah, and so it's just like strange because you'd think that after all these stories of police brutality, let's not let's call a spade a spade. After all these stories of police brutality that he's been telling Jake, when Amy does actually use a takedown with proper, appropriate force, Brogan's like, haha, you're hungover. That's so old school. Yep. And so, yeah, no, Amy, Amy's consistent, like, just like not here for this is, is we talked in Emmy time about the show not condoning certain behaviors through the, uh, like the other characters that are around them and jimmy brogan's persistent like homophobia and sexism the narrative at no point legitimizes brogan's opinion yeah and everything he does is super gross and the show lets us know like his old-timey expressions that jay thinks are cool like handling your brown (laughs) even 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 jake's like uh but unloading yeah Oh, that's terrible. That's it's terrible. been tainted for me ever since. Like, even in, you know, completely normal situations, like, I need to unload if in this conversation. Like, I need to, you know, take a load off and, and discuss things. I'm like, ugh, Jimmy Brogan, what'd you do? I, I get grossed out when, like, I see a bunch of dudes, like, moving stuff into a into a grocery store and who are like, we help me unload this truck, man. And I'm just like, uh, nope, 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 nope. Not not only does Brogan like deliberately exclude her from like sort of the conversation he's having with Jake, but Brogan also actively sort of denigrates her skill set. Yeah, she we see her do the algorithmic based, you know, tracing of the cyber criminal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which is pretty sophisticated. I so I mentioned in the pilot I work in the New York tech scene. What she's describing is not I mean it's not like straight up hacking it's not like super like that but it's like it's a fairly sophisticated like the algorithm the fact that they're using an algorithm it's a fairly sophisticated backtrace it's it's pretty legit this is not like an easy simple thing they're doing a big data mine is what essentially what they're doing if you're if you're a tech at all but to him that and any kind of you know proper maintenance and record keeping is hairbag work mm-hmm. it's always going to be illegitimate mm-hmm. and it's going to be you know Desk work, safe work, you know, woman's work. It's yeah, ugh, ugh. yeah, yeah. Carl is act having like a full on physical negative reaction here. I only wish you all could see it. I pointed out in my notes here that like that this exact same skill set is what major crimes later asks her. It's the it's why she gets the promotion opportunity from major crimes. And that's a death job. Yeah. You know, it's a data analysis death job. Yeah. It's not her true passion, and she doesn't pretend like it is ever. Mm-hmm. But, but it's something she's good at. Brogan would have lost her later, I think, if she if he hadn't started from there. That was their first, like, real interaction one-on-one. It's after he's like, ugh, hairbag work, that Jake walks in smelling like an ashtray. Because mm-hmm. he <laughs> updated an ashtray on his face. Yes. 
Oh god, that's so gross. I can't even talk about that. It's pineapples so gross. is not very clever in this episode. I'm sorry. Pineapples, he's not very clever. No, pineapples has. Amy works so hard to shut him down, uh, and she's successful. Can we talk about how the hell did that conversation happen? Where he was like, "My nana called me pineapples." How did how did that happen? I don't know. You know that they, you know that he has to talk constantly to fill <laughs> any silence. He has told her so much. About his life. But she remembered that, obviously. <laughs> Blackmail. I just... Oh, God. I can't even handle it. So, yeah, Brogan... In, in Universe, Brogan has written a book called The Squad. We actually want to pose the, to you, the audience, a question. Do you think The Squad is based on a real book? Because uh, there's a huge section of true crime out there. Carl mentioned to me in our pre-conversation how, like, true crime is a long-running, well-established genre. There's a lot of different books that, that could essentially amalgamate into The Squad. And and specific and like even looking at the the book itself, it's very much like late seventies, early eighties styling. I personally suspect it's an homage, but like a really negative, like sort of condescending homage to Homicide: A Year on the Killing Streets by David Simon. In fact, the first time I saw this episode, I called uh, my best friend Lauren. Lauren, hi, and uh, yo. <laughs> yes, Carl says yo. And I told her, I was like, did they just do a full-on Wire parody where, you know, with David Simon and everything? Because, like, now David Simon never really, like, started to party with these guys the way Brogan clearly did. And Holt says that they were drinking buddies. But I don't think um, Simon was ever like that with the Baltimore cops. Still, I'm I'm curious to see if, if you guys, the listeners, think that the squad might be based on some other book. Like I said, my, my personal advocacy is for the book that The Wire is based on. Um, so, yeah, throwing that out there. Let's talk about how gross the scene in the Schwitz is. First of all, that's a ter- I don't like that word. Yeah, it's got the kind of heft of a lot of Yiddish words, <laughs> but it just means sweat. Schwitz just means sweat. Whoa, how do you know that? I figured it out on, a, on an episode of Yo, Is This Racist? Great podcast. It is a great podcast. But yeah, Schwitz is, Schwitz means sweat. It's um, you know a bathhouse or like yeah, a, a, a multi-chambered sauna or something. The sign outside of the place labels it a Russian and Turkish bathhouse. Right, which I don't understand that <laughs> market, but you know. Well, people didn't used to have plumbing. That's well, mostly what it is. Yeah, it's a space where. Men can be in the buff together, which is only sustainable because there will never be a woman there, and they will never, you know, admit to themselves that homosexuality is a possible thing. It's like it is a place for heterosexual men to feel unthreatened, sweating. Right, that's what it's for. That's its business model. Okay, so meanwhile, can we just talk about how everything about that scene is gross? We talked yeah. about the environment being gross. Yeah. Can we talk about how Brogan is a dinosaur? Just like, just, he calls him, a, he calls Holt straight up a homo, which yep. beyond just like, that's like clearly like the network stand in for just straight up calling Holt a faggot. Let's be yeah. real. Like, that's clearly what the show is trying to have us like sure. say without saying. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what slur it is, but he slurred Holt. So what I felt about that scene is that, first of all, uh, we talked about Jake using his privilege. He connects to Brogan there by 
going and using the connection that was possible because he is a white male cop who embodies that kind of masculinity that Brogan's holding up and asks based on that connection to get something for his precinct to get the damaging quotes pulled and Brogan will accept that as out of a sense of fucked up fraternity but the cost of that is continuing to occupy that space with him and when he takes it to a level of slurring Jake's actual mentor then you go and get punched yes and I want to come back to that in a second but before we like come back to that I want to take a step back in that conversation where Jake's tiptoeing around something and Brogan calls him out on it by being like just be a man you know say it and Jake says okay you got me drunk and took advantage of me and Brogan's like come on and this is it's, it's one of those I consider myself a reasonably like generally speaking I'm a fairly like pro-feminist positive feminist person like positively feminist person um, and I you know intersectional the whole thing it took me multiple rewatches to get I don't want to say joke there. the subtext yeah which is that you got me drunk and took advantage of me is not a manly way of talking about the situation, even yeah. though, like, I never saw it as anything but, like, literally true. It is literally true. Yeah. But it's the note there is that in Brogan's world, it is unmanful to admit rape culture. Yes. And so I, that's, that's kind of what I'm saying is I, that aspect of it did not strike me until I'd seen the episode, like, 10, 12 times. And what I think about that scene is the entire joke there is how impossible it actually is for Jake to embody this outmoded form of masculinity. Mm-hmm. And how impossible it should be, honestly, because pretty, it is an outmoded. Pretty great way to form a joke, right? Like, to have the joke be, you have to... Our main character, our focus, has to visibly recoil from the idea of accepting this, this mode of thinking into his life. Yeah. It's like you said at the beginning of this conversation, you should never meet your heroes. Well, not if your heroes are fucking Jimmy Brogan. Yeah. Like, ugh. Well, I think if it had been me, I would have wanted to believe that Brogan had, like, outgrown that attitude, maybe? I don't know. Clearly, Jake was just blinded to this sheer, like, attitudinal problem there. Yeah. It's something that Holt effectively, and we, we said this earlier, like, Holt deliberately brings that into focus for Jake. And Jake still doesn't see it. It's until Brogan goes after Holt directly. And you you said something I thought was really cool, which was that Jake has given a lot of alternatives to Brogan as, like, mentor and hero. Not not the least of which being Holt directly. We get to see 70s Holt. We do. In a really hilarious scene where it's... Hilarious sad? Hilarious sad? Yeah, he gets assigned to... His first day on the job, he goes into this room full of white guys with terrible hair and says his name is Raymond Holt, and every, and someone asks him if he's there to turn himself in. Mm. That's how insane the idea of a black police detective in this particular unit is. Mm. But this is a flashback to the man who caught the disco strangler, someone whose case files Jake has read and legitimately idolizes. He thinks that Holt is really was really, really cool back mm-hmm. then. And still thinks Holt was really cool back then. That comes back later. Yeah. Yeah. And... That is a kind of police work that he could aspire to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. without being illegal. Or, or I mean, not just illegal, but also without it being, like, him compromising himself. Yeah. You know, 
Holt, Holt doesn't advocate for Jake to actively perform any specific type of masculinity. The closest Holt comes to that is telling Jake to perhaps manscape less. <laughs> which is which is just, It's really just an aesthetic opinion. Yeah, that's not really like mass He doesn't per, he doesn't condemn Jake for man, mass manscaping. He's just like maybe you should not <laughs> manscape as much as you are. <laughs> <laughs> the other kind of subtle uh, alternate path is happens during the hangover scene, which I know you wanted to talk about. I love. We will cut. We'll finish with that. Okay. Yeah. Well, so after Jake gets massively hungover, yes. Um, Amy goes to him with a glass full of egg yolks. Yeah, looks like it's three of them. I think. I thought it was a lot more. It's gross. Either it's way, a, it's a ton of eggs. <laughs> it's too many. And she's like, "This is my cop grandfather's old school hangover remedy." Yeah, her exact line is, "My grandfather was an old school cop. This was his hangover remedy." Yeah, like, and she's basically saying, you know, I have people I look up to. From this era. From this era. Yeah. This is literally the antidote to Jimmy Brogan. Drink it. Yeah. We know so little about Amy overall. And Jake says after eight years of knowing Rosa, he only knows three things about her. And one of those things is that she will not let people crash at his place. That's from 48 Hours, like the last episode. But... I was talking to, um, I was talking to, uh, her name is Undisturbed on Tumblr. She and I were chatting and we pointed out to each other that we actually know way little about Amy overall. Like, we know strikingly little about Amy. And in fact, I think we can pretty much count on one hand all the, like, real, like, sort of backstory things we know about Amy. Yeah, but we know a lot about her personality in the present. True. We And we get told... We get shown a lot of scenes that are happening in her outside life. True. Compared to Rosa. Like, we never see her flash outside the office. That's true. We have never seen her not on duty or hanging out with other cops. No, we see her with her sister at Thanksgiving. Right. That's the only time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think you're right. Still, it's really cool that Amy has an old school cop grandfather. And Uh I think think this is actually the... um, genesis for sort of the fandom there's a nice little bit of fanon i think where and amy's entire family is just cops which okay i can i guess i can get behind that that can happen yeah i could i could buy that uh but you're so we talked about we mentioned that that scene happens during jake in the midst of his like horrible hangover i want to talk about how that's the most realistic i've ever seen a hangover portrayed on tv and like now they've gone past the like heavy stuff like this is this is my jam yeah, so one thing that always disappoints me about TV comedies is that, like, there's just a kind of insatiability to all the main characters. They will drink, like, <laughs> bottles and bottles and bottles and bottles of alcohol and, like... Be okay. Yeah, and be concerned that they're only having sex every other day of their lives <laughs> as if these are problems. <laughs> like, they're just completely incapable of being run down by anything. <laughs> and, and it's like, this is... This is our comedic ideal, huh? <laughs> and, like, for me, it's just, like, one, I haven't been able to drink like that since I was 19. And two, that was the most realistic I've ever seen a mm-hmm. hangover portrayed on television ever. Mm-hmm. Ever. I, so my company holiday party in December, we realized, after I counted, I realized I'd had something like, like, 15 shots worth of alcohol in the course of, like, four hours. Many of which of those were shots. So don't do that, kids. And... I, my entire body has dry mouth, like, 
struck a chord with me more than I want to admit it did. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. We've all been there. My entire this body is why I don't out. drink wine. Oh my god. And then uh, the, the, <laughs> the halt your mouth siren. <laughs> he says that to Amy when she's like, oh, and then the drunk texts that he sends Amy are so great. They're What's his so name great. in Serpico? Like, I think he, she was asking how to say Jimmy in Spanish. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure that's what autocorrected it to. Serpico. Serpico. And then, <laughs> and then I'm having Who's the, the guy with the face? <laughs> He says, uh, I'm having the best light of my... Lo- uh, loaf of my lunch, I think. Mm. It's something of my loaf. It's it's light of my loaf. That's right. what it is. And um, I just... Oh, God, it's so... And, and, and then a shirtless picture of him eating uh, Chinese, chicken, Chinese sal- chicken salad on, on the train station. Yeah, which, by the way, is like a cold noodle lo mein thing with chicken. Yeah. It sounds terrible. Um, but shirtless on the train platform. Like, no explanations. Oh, God. Just such an accurate... Like, I just like that they, like... He apparently, like, drunk texts her and she's like, oh, boy. Like, and... Also, also, A, establishes that he drunk texts her. Very fertile ground for the imagination. Indeed. B, like you said when he was like, no, don't go. You got racial microaggression, but whatever. Those texts are basically, Amy, come back. We're having such a good time. Yes. Come hang with me, Amy. (laughs) Come back. Please come back. It's so much fun. See? Yeah. Why Scotch burns so good? Yeah. Oh, my God. The the scene where Brogan throws the darts at him, that's the most Sandler I think I've ever seen Andy Sandberg be. (laughs) Like, for better or for worse. Like, he's even got the Adam Sandler voice there. He's like, do it. I believe in you. <laughs> Which makes me wonder if Adam Sandler's stage persona, because that's his stage voice. It's not his, like, real life voice. I wonder if makes me wonder if his stage persona is just always meant to be drunk. Just Maybe. Just constantly drunken. If so, that makes this whole, his whole shtick way more palatable to me. No, but, like, oh, God. the Just the, when he's, like, tell me, he's smiling at Amy, and he's, like, tell me when he's gone so I can slide onto the nice cold floor. Oh, my God. This is, there's so much verisimilitude. <laughs> truth that entire scene every scene with jake being super hungover and just like god everyone shut up and leave me alone right now so much life mm-hmm. gave me so much life the day after that holiday party i woke up at i woke up in time for my job sat up and immediately was like nope and went right back to sleep <laughs> oh my god the fact that jake dragged himself back to work the next day like oh my god i can't even... to make a point yeah yeah it's extraordinary. Anyway, yeah. So, thank you, show, for giving us the most accurate hangover scene I've ever seen in my life. Good job, show. Thank Good you. show. Job, yes. job. So that's basically everything we wanted to talk about the a plot because Brogan is terrible. But he's gone now. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. He got punched out of the picture. He's gone. Yes, I could talk and just you know uh, objectify Jake Peralta slash Andy Samberg, but I don't think mm-hmm. I don't think you're here for that. It's not the first time he's been shirtless either. We saw his abs in the pilot. Any time. You're right. Well, we get like a basically lo- exactly the same costume. No, he's wearing a toga. We see more of his. Ab- That's later. He gets pulled out of the mortuary slab, and it's just around his waist. You're right. Yep. And when he's laid out on the floor, 
He's wearing socks and boxers and nothing else. Yep. You're right. All I was going to say was, very disappointingly to me, I guess disappointing is in the eye of the beholder, they didn't even give him a fake tat. A lot of cops I know have tats, so hey. Yeah, but I bet Jake Peralta is afraid of needles. (laughs) I mean, he is, right? Is he? Why not? (laughs) That's adorable. He doesn't like pain. What are we talking about? (laughs) But he gets into a fight and sells pizza. Yeah, that does, I mean, he cares more about the <laughs> honor of South Pizza than about not liking pain. <laughs> like, he also, you know, falls off a ladder. He cares more about physical comedy. But I don't think he cares enough about, like, <laughs> artwork to get any on his body in exchange for pain. Fair enough. So let's talk about the B-plot. Rosa is terrible at testifying. She's the worst. Oh, no. I don't want to do a Rosa's the worst section. Well, so, like... She's the worst at testifying, maybe. She's the worst at testifying because it requires a different persona than the one that works on criminals. Mm-hmm. And no one's actually told her how to translate her skill set into that. Mm-hmm. Like When she's threatening the stenographer, I think the first time I saw that, like I literally had to pause, because I, I was watching it delayed on Hulu because I don't have cable. But I think I had to pause the video and just like sit and laugh in my apartment for like 10 minutes. It's pretty great. Like, she is a roving threat in real life, which is also why uh, Boyle and Terry can't correctly diagnose her. Mm -hmm. They, like, give her a bunch of patches and just assume that she's competent but terrifying. Yes. When, in fact, she's kind of paralyzed with kind of social direction. I love the idea of, like, they just assume that, like, (laughs) you're just terrifying. If we just, like you know, sand off the sharp edges a little bit, you'll be fine. NBD. Yeah. They can't conceive of her being scared of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's great, though, because it's like, one, we rarely get Rosa being vulnerable at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we see more of it as the season goes on. And not even just, like, being vulnerable, so much as just being less prickly. It's not about prickliness. She's just as prickly. Like, her response to uh, Charles's uh, infinite linguini fantasy now i'm hungry yeah it's uh on top of everything now i'm hungry and she's still super mad yes like when they call out that she's nervous she's like of course i'm nervous <laughs> i'll rip your throats out doesn't say that but. <laughs> it's a defense mechanism yeah 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 but like the advice which is like blink exactly this amount <laughs> control your autonomic functions to this degree <laughs> Smile all the time. Use this specific phrase. That's all. That's all patchwork. It's sim- it's treating symptoms, not the cause. Yeah, or the disease, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about how terrifying her happy place is? Her happy place is where you go to the dump- to dump the bodies. It's a cabin in the woods, and she's beating the shit out of the lawyer with his own arm. Yeah, like that's intense. It is. It is a horrifying murder palace. Oh, that was what I want to talk about, Terry. Having to, like, deal with his children. His right, right. adult children. So it's Terry who calls the mandatory meeting in the first place. Yeah. He likes his mandatory appropriateness meetings. Yes. He's like, I can't let you guys embarrass me in public. <laughs> More than you already have. Yeah. So Terry's the one who calls the meeting in the first place. Mm-hmm. He demands it as mandatory. And then he's like, when Boyle, like... When they cr- finish picking out the, the uh, outfit into a very, very uh, nice blazer yeah it's a navy blazer with like a scoot skirt i think yeah suit skirt Mm -hmm. um yeah so they pick this outfit for rosa 
And Boyle's like, you look beautiful. And he grabs him by the shoulder and, <laughs> and pulls, pulls him, him back. back. As if to say, reel it in, Boyle. Keep it together. Yeah. He does actually say to Boyle at some point, keep it together, man. Yeah. But it's about, and it's about Rosa, too. Yeah. What I love about that is it's the kind of automatic grabbing and pulling back reaction that you get from having a two-year-old. It's like, that baby's heading straight for the pool pickup. <laughs> <laughs> it's automatic. He just does it. Yeah. Yeah. And Boyle reacts very quickly. Yeah, he totally, like, uh, he, it's not as awkward of the nice save as, like, Amy's like, why, why, it's not that bad. He's like, you look beautifully appropriate for court. Like, it's yeah. not terrible. Plus, we know, based on 48 hours, that Rosa has no ability to tell when Charles is lying or stumbling. Yep. So, it works out in Charles's favor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh... He's trying to groom Rosa with an appropriate amount of advice plus positive feedback plus negative feedback. Mm. He has the aforementioned stumbling blocks, <laughs> but you know. Yeah. He's also not afraid to tell her that he's trying to get her up for a psych evaluation. <laughs> no, he is. Well, to be fair. She needs one. Also, I don't think, like, I think Rosa's primary, like, scariness tactic is her physical, like, her ability to be physically imposing. Yeah. Not, like, literally, but, like, the fact that she has, like, a physicality to her. And an aura of menace. Yes. I don't think Terry is particularly threatened by either of those things. I think also Rosa's not the type to actively turn that aura of menace on to Terry. Yeah, I think that she actually respects the chain of command. Yes. Yeah. And and that's normal. And not normal. That's necessary in a paramilitary organization. Yep. That's the whole point. Well, we've exhausted all our topics. Yeah. Good job, team. Uh, Gina does not appear in this episode, right? Yeah, she does not. We said we the should... last time she didn't appear that she was off having Tupperware adventures with probably Hitchcock or Scully. But they both appear, admittedly, briefly in this episode. Should we talk about that? Nah. Uh, nah. Nah. I think that she's hooking up with Savant. Is that child a child? Savant? Yeah. No, he's 20-something. Really? He's His level of facial hair and bags under eyes and stuff... And he has a t-shirt about voting. Pretty sure he's an actual adult. Wait, but he can't. That's not till next episode. South Pizza is the next episode. Fuck. Okay, I need to invent a new... So we know she's not going Tupperware shopping, because that was what we said last time. But Hitchcock and Scully appear in this episode. Right. So what is she doing? Maybe she's cutting her own hair. No, wait, she does on the next episode. Um, Maybe she's... She walking? Maybe, maybe Florgasm is on a city tour. You know what? I would love for Florgasm to be on a city tour. Let's do. Let's say that. Cool. Gina's subplot was super fun. This episode was super fun. Super short, too. Hope you guys had a short commute this day. Cool. Thanks, guys, for listening. We had a good time. Hope you did. Until next time, this has been Back in the Field. I'm Carl. My name is Arthi, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>